listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylight. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Hallie Perry. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We are open every day from 10 to 10 for curbside pickup and masked in-store browsing. You can shop online nationwide at skylightbooks.com. Today, we're welcoming John McGregor to read from his new book, Lean Fall Stand, out from Catapult. He'll be in conversation with Julia Phillips. John McGregor is the winner of the International IMPAC Dublin Literary Award, the Costa Book Award, the Betty Betty Trask Prize, and the Somerset Malm Award, and the American Academy of Arts and Letters E.M. Forster Award and has been longlisted three times for the Man Booker Prize, most recently for his last novel, Reservoir 13. He is a professor of creative writing at the University of Nottingham, England, where he edits the Letters page, a literary journal in letters. Julia Phillips is the debut author of the internationally best-selling novel, Disappearing Earth, which was a finalist for the National Book Award. A Fulbright Fellow, Julia has written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, and the Paris Review. She teaches at the Randolph Randolph College MFA program and lives in Brooklyn. Welcome, John and Julia. We are so happy to have you. Hi, Holly. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. John, thank you so much for being willing to chat with me today for Skylight Books. I'm a huge fan of yours, and it's such an honor to get to be in conversation. And just oh, you're as, welcome. Oh, I'm very excited. <laughs> just as Hallie said, we're going to be talking about your stunning new novel, Lean Fall Stand, which The Guardian called a beautifully restrained interrogation of language, care, and loss. Uh, I love to hear how critics fawn over your work. I also love to hear how authors describe their work in their own words. So I'm really curious, how do you sum up Lean Fall Stand? What do you think this book is about? When you have to tell people what your new book is about, what do you say? Okay, so so when I tell people, I tell them it's about um, Antarctica and it's about um, three men getting into terrible trouble in, in, and danger in Antarctica, because that makes it sound really exciting. And and it's kind of the first book I've written where I can just say something really straightforward and exciting sounding um, in terms of what it's about. But but actually what it's about is language and the failures of language, the loss of language in particular for one of the characters, but, but much more broadly, the, the kind of inadequacy and failure of language. And that was what it became about for me. 
that is a bit less exciting to tell people. So I usually stick to Antarctica to start off with. Well, it's, it's nice that both are true. Both are exciting, maybe for different people, but uh, yeah. one appeals more than the next, but they're both very exciting and they're both so present in this book. Um, well, and actually speaking of language, your language is always so stunning and comparable. I wonder if you would mind reading a bit from the book for us. Certainly. Um, yeah, so I'm gonna read a, um, a short piece from quite near the beginning of the book. So it, it, as I said, at the beginning of the book, there, we join three men who are working in Antarctica on a, on a science um, research trip and they have got into trouble. There's, there's, there's a storm has blown up and the three of them have become separated and we move between the, the perspectives of the three men in this first section of the book as things go from bad to worse. So this section is from the perspective of um, Doc. Doc is his nickname, his real name is Robert Wright. Um, and he, he, he will become the main character in the book. Priestly Head was little more than a bump in the topography, really. It had taken five minutes to walk up from where he'd left the skidoo. The cliffs facing out to the sound were barely 30 meters above the water, enough to add a little drama to Thomas's pictures. From here, the view of the whole valley was excellent. In the near distance, the red field hut of Station K sheltered in the lee of Garrod Ridge and the peaks of K7 and K8 beyond. Below the field hut, the ground sloping down to the skiway, marked by orange fuel drums and black flags, and beyond that, the dark grey waters of Lopez Sound, fringed with fast ice. In the sound, the icebergs had turned against each other, dipping and rocking with a sudden unexpected movement in the water. Doc had looked up towards Everard Glacier and seen a thick rolling shadow of banked clouds, a faint orange light, a surge of weather coming down towards them. It had come out of nowhere, and it had come in fast, the temperature dropping sharply. He'd seen Thomas glancing over his shoulder and trying to fold away his camera tripod, and when he tried the radio, there'd been no response. He'd seen Luke standing beside the skidoo, turning to look at him. He'd barely managed two steps towards the shelter of the slope before the wind slammed hard against him and pushed him back towards the edge of the cliff. He adopted a prone position, slipping quickly across the loose scree, scrabbling for a foothold and finding only thin air behind him. He stretched out his arms and tried to shift his weight forwards. He closed his eyes and concentrated. He arched one foot out and around to the left, bringing his knee up towards his chest. The noise of the wind was so violent it was difficult to think. His boot touched rock, finally, but when he pushed out against it, the rock loosened and fell down the sheer drop. For a long, giddy moment, his weight swayed away after it. He slowed his breathing. He concentrated. He inched his way forwards again. The cliff wasn't high, but he wouldn't survive a fall. His hands felt loose inside his gloves. The scree felt slippery beneath him. He could feel the edge of the ridge beneath his waist now, his legs hanging in the air. He pressed himself flatter against the rock, working his weight further forwards. His radio was in his inside jacket pocket and crushing against his ribs. He felt it vibrate. The other two would be checking in now, surely. He had no way to respond. He trusted them not to panic. They would shelter in place, as per the training. He had been in these situations before, and this was no different. 
you didn't go 30-odd seasons on the ice without getting into one or two scrapes. The trick was to slow down and start thinking. Always have the next step in mind. His next step here, obviously, would be to transfer his weight forwards and roll clear of the edge before moving down into shelter and making contact with his colleagues. He took several slow breaths and made an effort to rationalise his thoughts. He flexed his fingers to maintain the circulation. You won't fall until you let go, a supervisor had told him once during crevasse training. The logic wasn't entirely sound, but the spirit was a fine one. Don't look down. Don't let go. Hold on. The trick was to hold on, always. That's our cliffhanger, right? Will you forgive me if I make a it bad It is exactly a cliffhanger. <laughs> it was very deliberately and specifically a cliffhanger. Um, All right. Awesome. Some, somebody, somebody once said to me, um, you know, I, you, I enjoy your books, John, but they're not exactly cliffhangers. And, and I kind of <laughs> was determined then to write a, a, a literal cliffhanger. I'm, I'm so curious about that determination. Okay, I've got so many questions for you, John. It's hard <laughs> to sort out which to ask first, but I want to ask maybe then about exactly that and about what you said before, you know, that your other books, you, in the past, you haven't been able to say to people, oh, there's this, you know, big terrifying thing that happens and in Antarctica, and that gets them intrigued. And this one is different. I, in a couple of interviews I read, you mentioned uh, in the past being averse to big drama, that at certain points of your writing life, you're not, you not looking for big drama. And then you were drawn to it for this book. And I, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that choice to make this one different, that choice to have a cliffhanger. I have to say, it, to me, it feels totally consistent with your other work and, and not like a, um, like an aberration or something it, it feels so right <laughs> it feels like a john mcgregor book and yet um yet the way you talk about it is different now and i'm so curious about that difference yeah i think um it's really interesting because i've always i think when i started writing i instinctively i don't know i was instinctively drawn to characters and the way characters kind of brush up against each other and 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 their 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 misunderstandings and their misconnections and and you know the the kind of that kind of rich detail of 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 life rather than plot you know i was i was never interested in plot you know i enjoy plot in other people's work i just was never interested in in constructing it myself and and I realized, I, I, so I've been, I've been working on this book for a, a long, long time, or trying to work on it for a long time. And I had several versions of roughly this story of the three men isolated in, in a kind of remote part of Antarctica, getting into trouble and not being able to get themselves out of it. And, and all the versions I'd written before were kind of very detached and, and, and they were kind of, you know, it was it was an old man in his shed in England writing his memoirs, remembering this thing that happened years earlier, you know, or it was people talking about it years later to each other. And it just occurred to me one day, like, if I've got Antarctica, which is dramatic and exciting and scary and dangerous, and I've got this 
story that I've conceived of them being in a dramatic, scary situation. Why am I not writing it there in the moment? Why am I not kind of bringing the reader right into that situation? And um, and I realise that this kind of you know, I keep telling myself and other people that I'm you know not interested in plot and drama, and it had become a kind of a kind of uh, a habit, you know, and, and, a, and a kind of safe space. Um, so I became quite interested in in challenging myself to kind of to, to write in a different way. But 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 you're right. I mean, in the same, you know, underneath the drama, I'm still interested in how do these three men understand each other? How do they talk to each other? What do they not say to each other? Where where do they come from? You know, the the kind of stuff I've always been interested in. So it's all it's all still there. What was it like? when you decided to go into that that dramatic moment that like a creative risk but such an exciting one how did it feel did it was that the moment that unlocked the story you've been working on for a long time or was it just another phase in the long work it was it was the first of two moments that unlocked the book and and, and enabled me to finish it um and it was really exciting and and kind of fun because I just, I, I kind of kept escalating things. I was like, okay, there's going to be a storm. Okay. And the storm and that the, 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 they're not going to be able to see anything. And okay. And I'm going to have this, the, the ice is going to fracture. Um, okay. What else? What else? Uh, there's going to be a leopard seal appearing in the water, you know, like almost literally a shark, you know, I just, I just thought, why not? You know, th these things are present and this is the sort of thing I'm not supposed to do. I'll kind of, told myself I don't do so okay let's bring in the sharks um and it was a lot of fun and it kind of came out of um some stories I wrote for radio a few years ago after after I'd written Reservoir 13 um and I wrote them quite quite quickly and they were written to to, to be published as stories in a book but they were also written for stories for the radio and I suddenly realized that um how different that is. You know, if you're listening to a voice, how much more clear clear and succinct the, the story has to be and the information has to be. You know, to, when you're reading a book, you can glance back up the page and kind of check things and, and, and go back over them. And the listener to, to a radio program doesn't have that. And a listener to a radio program is quite likely to turn the radio off. You know, and I, I kind of, I had this image in my head of, of the, uh, of my story coming on the radio, somebody at home not expecting to to be listening to it, automatically reaching for the dial to to change to a different station, and and I had to put something in that first sentence that would stop them turning it over. And once I'd done that, and they were kind of hanging around in their kitchen, not sure why they were listening to this, I had to kind of almost every sentence had to keep their attention, and that was really new for me. I think I kind of relied on the fact that when somebody picks up a book they're going to have that bit more patience and that bit more kind of tolerance. Um, and, and so the stories had a really different energy for, for, for me. And I, I think I carried that into, into this. That's, that's the reservoir tapes that you're talking about, the experience of writing yeah. those. Yeah. For, for any excited podcast listeners out there who want to pick up your whole oeuvre. I'm sure I didn't say that word correctly. Um, <laughs> but it's such a, it's such a challenging and exciting exercise. I remember an editor saying to me once that it was the chop the vegetables problem, even with reading, that, that you have to keep hooking the reader over and over again. Otherwise they'll say, well, yeah, I like this, but 
I've got something else to do. You know, I've got, I've got to go chop the vegetables. I've got to go. There's something else that is calling my attention more urgently. Mm. So what a fun task to try to make it, um, to try to make your work demand for their attention. Most of all, was that that you said there were sort of two moments that unlocked it was, was that the second moment, the writing of, of those, um, those pieces for radio or was there a, a different second? Um, well, no. So, so, so writing the pieces for the radio made mm-hmm. me go back to the Antarctic story and, and kind mm-hmm. of, you know, recast it in this more kind of attention grabbing kind of, you know, to, not attention grabbing, but just to kind of honor the drama that already existed in, in, in the concept. Um, the second thing was, um, was think, starting to think about, about stroke and, and about aphasia. Um, so, this is a minor spoiler, but I think it's 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 kind of all over the back of the book anyway. Um, is is that the the storm that they're in? You know, not only is it incredibly dangerous, but in the middle of this storm, Doc has a stroke, um, and is is airlifted um, out of the situation and recovers to some extent, and is brought back to England. Um, and after his stroke, he he's he's left with. Um, with this condition called aphasia, where which affects people's language in in lots of different ways, and um, I don't really have people ask me this, and I don't really have a coherent answer for why I connected Antarctica with aphasia, why I wanted this character to have a stroke and, and end up with aphasia. But once I'd once I'd once it had occurred to me, it made sense in in all sorts of different ways, and and it made sense of the struggle I'd been having to write about Antarctica and to use language to to give Antarctica give give a sense of Antarctica to the reader. I'd I'd really struggled with that, and language felt kind of inadequate. Um, and thinking then about aphasia and what that would mean to kind of to be always struggling for language just brought a lot of things into focus for me about you know communication in in, in a broad sense and and communication between people and and I kind of realized it's something I've always written about is you know people kind of saying the wrong thing or you know not getting their point across um misunderstanding each other constantly um and and the idea of, of aphasia really kind of brought all of that into focus. And that, that was the second thing that, that really kind of turned a, an interesting writing project that had stalled repeatedly over the years into a book. It's so fascinating to think about these subjects, this setting and this subject for you, because I think of your, whenever I read your work, I, I'm bowled over by how perfectly every word is chosen. Um, every word is precise. Every sentence is precise. It's so extraordinarily um, crafted. You know, when when the craft is so good that it feels effortless, and you think it must have taken a lot of effort to make this feel so effortless, it just feels so right. Every single word on the page, and and so what a extraordinary challenge to write about in the first section of place that is so isolated um, and, and 
the second and third sections about loss of language about, you know, I, I, it's just so interesting to think about someone who communicates so well writing about these places where you can't communicate or, or these states of the body where you can't communicate. It's, it's really fascinating. And I wonder if writing about these subjects as you wrote about Antarctica, as you wrote about aphasia and as you worked on it for so long, did the process of working on it make you think differently about the words you choose or, or the way that you use them? Did the project change you as a writer or as a speaker? It's oh, really interesting. It changed me as a person, I think. I think I, I was initially interested in, in aphasia and stroke in quite a kind of uh, I want to say abstract, but not quite abstract, but, but in quite a detached way. You know, it's, it's not something that I've had personal experience of in, in my family, in my, in my friendship circle. Um, and so I was just kind of interested almost in a kind of technical way, you know, what is aphasia and how does that work and, and what's happening inside the brain and, and what are the processes by which people manage to re regain their language if, if they do. And it was very, just very kind of dry, I guess. And, and then once I started doing research and, and talking to people, I was suddenly kind of horrified and, 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 and terrified, you know, the, the, they, they call it a stroke be, historically because it was seen as something that would just, you know, it, it was God striking you down, you know, that it's so kind of arbitrary and so kind of random. Um, and, you know, although there's tons of research about uh, health factors that can predispose people to strokes are still a stroke can happen quite randomly to, to, to people of any age and any kind of health and, and fitness. Um, so it was kind of terrifying to think, to think about that happening to me and, and to think about losing language in that way. Um, you know, especially when, when it's, it's my profession, it's my life, it's the way that I've, uh, you know, uh, filtered the world, you know, and, 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 you know, I think a lot of writers get into writing because they like to spend the time choosing the right words. And often writers are not that great at conversation and then speaking fluently and especially speaking publicly. I, I almost, you know, sometimes you see a writer who's particularly good at, at kind of articulate public conversation and I, I somehow don't trust them. You know, it's kind of, <laughs> you know, I feel like, feel like, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm projecting, but, you know, I got into writing certainly because I was aware of being particularly bad at speaking and, and was enjoying having the time to, to choose the right words. Um, so I think, I think that this writing project and, and the research that I did for it just, yeah, it just introduced me to a whole, a whole new world of, of uh, people who are really kind of working hard to adapt to their new circumstances. Uh, their the new situations and I think uh, aphasia is really interesting it's, it's quite an invisible condition 
Um, and I think one reason for that is that you know, people with aphasia quite naturally retreat from the world to, to, to some extent. Um, but also it's just not understood. And, and one really interesting thing I noticed once I was doing the research and, and kind of getting my head around the different manifestations of aphasia, I started noticing people in, in public, in, in shops and on buses and the, the difficulties they were having in those exchanges, I could recognize as, as aphasia. And I thought, well, okay, I've, I've obviously seen these people before and I just, I didn't understand what, what it was I was seeing. So that, yeah, that was really interesting. How incredible to work on a project that makes you see the world in a new way or notice things you never knew before. And that seems like the ideal, not only did you write a beautiful book, but then you also get to um, have open eyes in a way you never did before. That is such a, a joy. I yeah yeah but that that's I think that happens a lot with writing doesn't it I think I think I think that's the ideal I think I think but sometimes I don't know I don't know if this is maybe you are wiser now you've written more books and you know how it works but I think um often when I start a project I think about the project and then I don't think about who the I think about what I'll make of the project and not about what the project will make of me, I guess, at the end. And it's only in retrospect that I'm able to see that both, both happened. So it's nice to hear about it. Yeah. I wonder, he, you keep going. Well, I'm just, I'm wondering if, if that has happened before. I think, I think with my last, two novels i've definitely learned more about the world they've been they've been quite kind of research driven novels and so you know you you naturally and once you once you know things about the world it it looks more detailed doesn't it you know like like i i'm quite sure if i got into bird watching properly and knew the names of all the different birds i could see and and could hear I would notice more birds, you know, once you can name something, you, 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 it's easier to see it, I think. And, yes. and the, and then the research for the last two novels has, has done that, but I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm kidding myself. I mean, knowing more about the world doesn't necessarily make you a bigger person. But well, it's nice to know more. About it doesn't make world. you smaller. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's probably, probably better than the alternative, I think to, to know something you didn't know before. And I always, um, I think more and more that that curiosity is the, is the driver of art, driver of fiction and, and um, the curiosity clearly, you know, that you have that, that drives you to research that leads you to take on top of these challenges, uh, take artistic risks that you haven't taken before. That is, it, it's translated to your readers. Like we feel it when we pick up the book, how, how vivid and, uh, extraordinary the work is so it's exciting it's exciting to see how that curiosity sort of wrought into your material I have a question about research by the way you mentioned research um, okay. and I know it's been a long project it seems like the research has been going back at least you know almost 20 years uh, you went to Antarctica in 2004 and you spent yeah. time with the aphasia Nottingham self-help group and I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about those experiences, those kind of experiences of immersion 
Yeah, yeah. So those, those, yeah. I mean, the the Antarctica trip was yeah two thousand and four, so seventeen years ago, and the going to the aphasia self help group was just in the last couple of years, um, and yeah, I'm a very different person. I was two very different people at, at those two ends of the scale, and two very different writers, I think. So when I went to the to the Antarctic, um, I went with the British Antarctic Survey who were running writing residencies, uh, well, writers and artists residencies. Um, and I kind of applied for it on a whim just because I saw an advert for it and it sounded exciting. Didn't really expect to get it, got it. Um, had never really been on any kind of residency before. Didn't really know how to proceed, how to kind of handle it. What, what uh, a first... Um, what a first residency. That's a, you're really dipping your yeah, toes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was in at the deep end for sure. Um, and yeah, it was, I mean, it was a, just an incredible opportunity. I couldn't really believe that they were just going to take me to Antarctica. Um, and, and it was, yeah, I, I mean, I, it, there were so many things I would have done differently if I'd gone several years later and kind of known more about myself and about about writing um and about working with other people and I it was just it was very it was very odd i mean one of the odd things about the trip was that we never actually got to where we were supposed to be going so we we were on a ship on a research ship that was heading down to the main antarctic base and from that base i was going to go off on a number of field trips and so all my planning was around being on that base and the ship, um, the, the sea ice was too thick for the ship to get through that year. So it, it spent about a week trying to get through this ice, kind of ramming backwards and forwards. And eventually they, they had to give up and turn back. Um, and so I spent the whole time, about five weeks on the ship, thinking that we were just about to arrive. And, and then I was going to start doing my proper work. And then we never arrived and, and suddenly I was on my way home and and kind of felt like I'd squandered that time. Um, but what happened was I was on the ship for, for five weeks and just spoke to everyone there and, you know, got some insights into into their work and their, their approach to their work. And, you know, especially people who've been, to, been there several times before, you know, they're... they're it's such a particular place to work and there's so much kind of, you know, people are very proud of, of working there and very nostalgic about the things that they've done and, and the place they've been. And they kind of, you know, they kind of know that it's such a kind of a, 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 a limited opportunity. You know, they're going to go there, you know, four times, five times, six times, and probably never go again. You know that I mean, Doc in the book has been going for thirty-three years. He's he's a kind of field guide. He's a kind of old hand, but but I've got the impression that the majority of people who go there, you know, it's fairly time limited. Um, so just talking to them about their their ideas and their their understanding of, of of Antarctica as a place, and that was really interesting. That was what really stuck with me, and and some of what I learned from those conversations fed into particularly the character of, of Doc and his kind of strange mix of 
nostalgia and puritanism and and kind of self his kind of self-perception as a kind of heroic self um but yeah i mean the amount of most of the research i did that actually fed into the book was done once i got home you know it kind of i i it was a strange kind of slightly missed opportunity but also an amazing one and then what about the the self-help society Group. Yeah. So, so, um, yeah, I kind of felt at this end of the scale that, that I, I kind of gained experience as a writer and, and, and a researcher and got the hang of how you ask people the right questions and, and kind of help them to encourage them to open up. Um, cause it's, it's always really interesting when, whenever you're talking to people for research, I, I find yeah, they, they say, they say quite reasonably because people are busy. They say, well, "What do you want to know?" And I'm always like, "Well, I, I don't know yet. I'd like <laughs> just talk for a bit, and then and something will sound interesting," um, which is not very helpful. So I kind of I've learned to, to to narrow that down a bit. But um, so when I start doing the research into the aphasia, I started with um, you know the professionals. You know, I, I went to the the stroke unit at the hospital. I spoke to the consultants. Um, I spoke to speech and language therapists and you know, found out about their work and, and how that goes. Um, and from there was then put in touch with, the, with this self-help group and got in touch with them and, you know, said, can I, can I come along and kind of expected just to go once or twice, but was encouraged to keep, to keep going basically. And so this group was meeting once a month, um, maybe, maybe, maybe a dozen people and about half and half, people with aphasia and their partners or carers or, or relatives. Um, and it was just like a conversation group, basically. They, they would kind of have a topic of the week and they would, you know, very painstakingly have a conversation about holidays or, or music or gardening or, or books on one occasion. Um, and... And it was a real breakthrough for me in my understanding of aphasia and my understanding of the characters that I was trying to write. Um, you know, I'd already kind of sketched out some characters before I went to the group because I didn't want to end up just importing those people in, into the book. Um, but the thing, the thing that really, that really made sense having been to the group was that aphasia is not a condition. It, it's, you know, the brain is incredibly complicated and, and everybody's stroke is, is, is different. And <clears throat> the ways in which people's languages, uh, language is, is, is affected is incredibly various and, and various in very complicated ways. And so, you know, everybody had a different way that their language had been impacted and, and, and different challenges that they had and different limitations and but also different ways of working around that and different ways of coping with it um and the really striking thing for me was that i quite quickly felt like i was getting to know these people and getting a really clear sense of of who they were of their personalities um without necessarily having very much conversation you know so we were exchanging meaning without exchanging meaning and and I found that really, really moving and, and, and just really fascinating. 
you know how 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 much connection is possible with with somebody when when the language is not not really doing the job um and then you know how much laughter there was in, in the meetings you know that everybody was very quick to laugh and to make jokes and to to wind each other up and of course they were you know and the, the thing i always forget until i remind it again the next time is is so I, I was interested in these people because they had aphasia you know in a previous book i was writing about people with addiction and i was interested in them because of their addictions um but those people are not primarily concerned with their aphasia or their addiction they're concerned with do they want tea or coffee you know what did they do yesterday you like it, it the thing is that is of interest to other people is not their primary concern and of course that's obvious but you sort of have to, to see it again and again to 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 to, to remember it and and i think i you know and that's really important in in fiction if you're writing about somebody particularly if you're writing about somebody from beyond your own experience that you don't make you don't make the thing that is other about them their primary characteristic you know or, or even their secondary like it's just it's the context for their life and you're writing about their life within that context um, and I think in, in fiction, that's a really important distinction. It reminds me of what you said before that when you first learned about aphasia, first started to um, go into it as a subject, it was like very heady. I, I know those weren't the words you used, but you know, in, yeah. in the world of ideas, um, sort, of, sort of more like a topic of research. And then in the group, you can be reminded again you know this is this is life and then i you know i i feel it and yeah. i occupy and I'm, I'm here and they're here and we're together and we talk about different things and or don't talk about different things or make jokes in different ways and and um that movement from the kind of the head into the body or the world of ideas into the actual like, physical complicated world is always such a thrilling one yeah the group is so beautiful in your book. And, and to me, um, I loved every group section so much, the way their voices overlapped because it, it's, I think, a, a, a showcase of a distinctive skill of yours, which is writing in that collective voice, writing um, you know, in the voice of the community in this 413 or writing in the voice of the street and if nobody speaks remarkable things. And I was wondering, about um, that interest of yours or that that particular skill of yours depicting an overlap of voices on the page or, or depicting many different people uh, in a moment all of whom are distinct and yet who who are all also like of a piece with each other to create a whole how do you do that <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know why I started trying to do it. And I don't know. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I know. Okay, so two things. I, I've come to understand that I'm a lot more interested in group groups and communities than I am in families. And, you know, I'll, 
classically the novel has often been about the family as a kind of central uh social structure and and for some reason that's never really interested me as as, as, a, as a kind of narrative context it turns out i've always been much more interested in in bigger groups and and groups that have just kind of been thrown together um and then i think i think before i even understood what point of view really meant i was interested in in how fiction can occupy lots of different points of view and 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 how easily you can you can bring the reader with you you know it, it as, as long you know as long as you kind of as long as you somehow signpost it or somehow kind of give the reader a nudge or a clue that you know okay and now we're now we're over here we're, okay we're, we're 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 with this we're on this sitting on this person's shoulder or we're, we're in their head or you know some some relation to them and okay hang on now we're over here and and it's really easy to 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 make those jumps just with some kind of shift in vocabulary or shift in in kind of physical perspective um and and one of the things i've always loved about reading fiction as well as writing fiction it at those moments when when you know that something is happening that couldn't happen on TV or in a film, you know that the, the moments when the kind of the, the time is slightly warping, or the, you know the, the the physical perspective, or you know the voices that you're hearing, the consciousness that you're being given access to, you know those things can happen incredibly flu fluidly on the page, and I find that really exciting and a, and a you know a kind of it's it's kind of getting one over on 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 tv almost um so i i think i just kind of you know i i enjoy writing i like writing and i like having fun with writing and i like kind of uh, the kind of technical challenge of of doing kind of slightly complicated slightly intricate things um and i like trying to work out if whether or not i'm bringing the reader with me whether or not the reader is going to make those those little shifts and jumps um so your question was actually how and i don't i don't quite know but i just got to keep trying until it sounds like it might work i feel i feel very satisfied with the answer of i don't know and also <laughs> <laughs> i think that is an excellent answer i it reminds me of another question i have actually about the, the effect that you hope to have on a reader or, or the feeling of, um, you know, will this, will this reader come with me to this place? Will they jump with me? Will they make the sleep? Will they go? Um, I found that ending of Lean Falstand to be extremely moving and moving in a way that for me felt so resonant with my experience of reading Reservoir 13, which in both I felt at the end very, intensely the sense of um when I was thinking about it the first word that came to mind was hope but it wasn't hope it was like acceptance and endurance and the beauty of endurance in our lives how precious it is to be alive even when the experience of being alive is is painful or complicated or shocking or, or abruptly cut short like for the time that we have whatever that time looks like it's it's um 
it's mundane and it's beautiful. And, and the feeling in both books was so strong to me. And then I was reading these interviews with you and you were saying, you know, I, I don't have some moral ethical vision that I'm trying to impart to readers. And I wondered, you know, I thought, does John intend to give me this feeling? Does, do you have this feeling when you write or is it, are you trying to impart to readers something else? Or you know, do you have a particular vision for how you want people to stand up and walk away from your books, what you want them to take from it? Or, or is it not that way for you? I know with my first novel, I did. And I kind of have been kind of running away from that, that tendency ever since. I think, I think now I don't start off with a sense of what the reader's going to feel when they get to the last page. But I do have an instinct that I want them to feel something. And I want them to feel something meaningful that kind of makes a coherent sense of, of the book as a whole. And part of the, you know, part of the writing process, part of the revision process at the end is 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 finding that moment, finding that that scene or that image that is gonna make some some coherent sense. I mean, I remember when I was writing um my third novel, Even the Dogs. I had I had quite a detailed plan for for the six chapters that this book was going to be, and I got to the end of the fifth chapter, and the last paragraph I wrote of this fifth chapter was so clearly the end of a novel that I just had to stop there, and I, I never wrote the sixth chapter. I, I just okay, but this is obviously the end, you know, and it's got that whatever that mood is, and I, and I wouldn't I couldn't necessarily articulate what that scene means or what, what the mood means, but it just kind of, for me, kind of ties the whole thing together. And I think with this, with Lean Full Stand, I, I realized at some point, probably while I was working on the, on the, those scenes with, with the group meetings that I'd gone into this with uh, hopefully only subconsciously, but, but, but at some level probably intending to write some kind of, recovery narrative redemption kind of narrative like okay he's had this terrible stroke and he's going to go to therapy and he's going to recover his language and get better and you know and, and it's going to end up with him talking to his children or something and um you know as much as physical therapy and speech and language therapy is is possible and productive and, and can achieve remarkable things um, for a lot of people who have strokes, the damage that is caused will always remain. And, and a lot of therapy is about helping people to adapt to that and to find ways of living with their new situation. And, you know, as that became clear to me, it became really important. I wanted that to be the journey that, that Doc would go on that he starts off wanting to fix himself because, you know, he's, he's spent his whole life fixing things, you know, things can be fixed. And, and so he, you know, he just wants to do the therapy and get fixed. And I wanted his journey to be realizing that that wasn't going to happen and, and kind of adapting to that and, and learning new ways of living with that. And, and yeah, so I guess I wanted the reader to kind of go along 
along there with him. Um, so I guess, yeah, I guess that closing scene is is something to do with acceptance, something to do with endurance. Adaptation, not, I think, is is a perfect way. Yeah, adapting to what to what is. Yeah. Which is yeah. and there's something else in, in that last scene where that might be the moment when he dies. It could have been the moment when he died. And I think in that moment, he's kind of ready for that. And, and that felt important as well. But I don't know. It's for the reader to decide. It's the reader's I, book. I think that's probably a, a perfect place uh, for us to end thinking about endings. Um, John, thank you so much for this conversation. I think I, you said so much that I'm gonna keep on thinking about over and over again. And thank you for your extraordinary book. It's just wonderful. And thank you to Skylight for having us. Thank you um, so much for sharing your work with us, John, and for your wonderful questions, Julia. Um, yeah, thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to go back and listen to this conversation over and over again. Um, was completely mesmerizing. Uh, today's guests, once again, were John McGregor and Julia Phillips, and they were discussing Lean Fall Stand, um, a novel. You can order your copy today at skylightbooks.com. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.